And now for today's program. Uh, David Cox is a professor of history at Southern Virginia University. Ordained in the Episcopal Church in 1972 to serve parishes in Connecticut, David returned to Virginia in 1987 to become rector of R. E. Lee Memorial Episcopal Church in Lexington. In 2000, he left that position to complete doctoral studies for which he received fellowships at Harvard Divinity School and Virginia Theological Seminary. He then served congregations in Northern Virginia, Richmond, and Hot Springs. In 2008, David was elected to the Lexington City Council on which he served a four-year term. At SVU since 2006, he has taught liberal arts and history with a focus on American and religious studies. He's published several books, including The Religious Life of Robert E. Lee, and most recently, Lee Chapel at 150, A History, the subject of today's lecture. By the way, Lee Chapel at 150 is only available for purchase from Washington and Lee University and David. So you, can find, you can't find it on Amazon or anywhere else for that matter. So we are pleased to be able to offer copies of it uh, for sale here, especially for you. So please give a warm welcome to David Cox. Thank you so much, Andy. Uh, it is always so good to come back to the, the uh, Virginia Museum of, of, His of History and Culture. Um, as many of us might still lapse into calling it the Virginia Historical Society. Uh, for many, many years, I was coming here and heading straight to the library where uh, Francis Pollard and now John McClure and their wonderful staff uh, were helping me in so many ways. And now I'm grateful to Graham Dozier for his help in setting this up for the folks in the museum shop. Uh, always, it's a warm welcome that I receive, and I'm happy to be here with you. Fourteen months ago, I was here for a lecture, and some of you were here, uh, when I talked about the book that I had published on Robert E. Lee, just in time for some controversy, as you might recall. Well, I guess I'm at it again because I publish uh, the history of Lee Chapel for a sesquicentennial just as Washington and Lee enters a time of controversy uh, over the relationship of Lee and the university and the chapel itself. But that's not the first time there has been controversy on that topic. But in some ways, what I want to talk about today is the exact reverse. For now, the question is, you know, with Lee's name being somewhat uh, problematic, what kind of connection does it have with the chapel? In the 1920s, it was just the opposite. Does the chapel suitably glorify Robert E. Lee? In fact, that controversy almost led to its total destruction and the creation of something new and, in my opinion at least, not necessarily better. But before I get to that, let me talk a little bit about the creation of the chapel itself and Lee's connection with it. 
the uh, Lee, as you probably know, came to Washington College in 1865. And as I suggested last year, uh, he came with a very clear understanding that he was on a mission for God. And that mission was to promote reconciliation in the reunited nation and to rebuild the prosperity of the South and in so doing make the likelihood of, of future war less likely. And the way to do that he chose was to become an educator. So he came to Washington College which at the point was at the point of almost total devastation and began to rebuild it. He did so by adding on to the classical curriculum of, of, of ancient languages and literature. He didn't just do away with those, but rather he supplemented them with courses in things like engineering, mining, um, journalism, business. He incorporated the law school. Modern languages such as English, history. What do all those have in common? These are practical courses designed to help young men, as they all were at that point, to return to their homes throughout the South and even in the North, to build up the economies of those of wherever it was that they came from in useful and pragmatic ways. That was his approach, and it worked. Over the years, the Washington College grew to become the second largest academic institution in the entire South after that school in Charlottesville. At a time when, uh, when some colleges weren't opening at all, Washington College opened and, and very quickly had tripled its, um, its enrollment just in his first year. And so he was highly successful in that regard. But it was more than just the curriculum that he wanted to utilize to make possible this kind of growth and progress that he had in mind. Washington College, like many, had long understood that along with the education of the mind was also the education of the soul, the development of character. Lee thoroughly bought into that. His own church believed it, and he embodied it. And so going to chapel was a routine part of every student's day. Now, at the time when Lee arrived, the chapel had been initially in the main building, but then had moved to this, what we call hyphen, between the main hall and what is now uh, Robinson Hall, which alumni know very well. After, with the kind of growth that the college had attracted, that became very quickly way too small. So he needed a place where the com college community 
of students and faculty could gather as one. He needed a larger place. He also needed that room as a classroom. He also wanted to have a place where people could gather not only for academic purposes, but for worship. And so he proposed at the end of his first year to build a chapel. Now, what President Lee, what General Lee wanted, the faculty and trustees pretty soon realized General Lee was going to get. So they authorized the building of a new chapel. $10,000 they had in mind. Well, that didn't work out quite the way they thought about it, but it was not enough money to hire a real architect. So what they did was uh, to follow in a long American tradition of looking at books and getting designs from these books. Think Thomas Jefferson and Monticello or the state capitol for that matter. Well, Lee had two people in mind who could help him to do this. Both were next door at VMI, Virginia Military Institute. One was Thomas Holmes Williamson here, who actually was one of the first teachers of architecture in the country and had written one of, if not the very first textbook on the topic. The other was his partner in, in engineering, George Washington uh, Custis Lee, Lee's, Robert E. Lee's son, whom you see here. And the young Lee also had a keen interest in architecture. He also owned a book. And the book was entitled Hints on Public Architecture by a gentleman named Robert Dale Owen. Now, Owen was a congressman. His father had been the Scottish reformer of the same name. But Owen was a congressman who chaired the committee that saw the design of the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. That was a radical design for the day because it abandoned the Greek and Roman classical style of, uh, of columns and pediments for a more Romanesque, Norman style of architecture. And in this book, you see the front page there, which also looks rather Gothic, he defended that as a, the most appropriate architecture for um, the new country and continent of America. This was in defense of the decision that he made. Well, I don't know how many people would buy that as the prototypical American architecture, but these two people and Robert E. Lee thought he had something in mind. Besides, they taught in an institution which was itself recently built in a more medieval style, VMI. And this was the Romantic era when buildings like that often evoked the medieval age. So that's what they did. They, uh, you can see uh, that they, the tower of Lee Chapel here very much resembles the Campanile of the Smithsonian Institution. Here's a, a picture actually from Owen's book compared with a photograph from the 1880s of Lee Chapel. 
So they built it in this style on the in exterior. The interior was much simpler, much more common for that part of Virginia. This is the earliest photograph we have of the interior, and it depicts uh, uh, the chapel at the time of Lee's death. You can see his beer right here, and actually back here is the lectern or dais that is still used in Lee Chapel, the original one. Two students are, stand, are, are keeping watch over the beer uh, just before the, the burial. Lee, of course, was buried in Lee Chapel, first in the basement not far from where his office had been located. The trustees and faculty had determined that they would never change the office. It would, they would leave it exactly as it was at the time of Lee's death. But they did find that as more and more Lees died and were buried in the basement, and as they contemplated the recumbent statue that Edward Valentine was crafting for the chapel, that that was too small a space. They needed to expand. And so they did. They uh, put on the extension that uh, I'm sure if you've been there, you know. Uh, they pushed it back and so that you have the recumbent statue ch and its chamber on the main floor of the auditorium, or of the dais at least. Uh, and then down below is the family mausoleum. And the uh, Lee's office remains as it was, more or less, uh, right where it was in the basement. So that's the way it was uh, ad dedicated in 1883. And that is basically the chapel as we still know it. Then the chapel went into something of a decline. The, the university itself had gone into decline, and they didn't have much money, and so they certainly didn't want to spend it on the chapel. And so the chapel began to suffer, as did the university for a time. And then, in the years prior to World War I, and then especially after World War I, several presidents saw to it that the university would undergo a revival. The second of these presidents was a man named Henry Louis Smith. Now, Henry Louis Smith, well, he was a promising young president. He had been president of Davidson College uh, before, and then he left that position to come to Washington and Lee. He was a person of promise. But, as the English critic Cyril Connolly wrote, whom the gods would destroy, they first call promising. He, students were flocking to Washington and Lee, as they had, interestingly, to Washington College right after the earlier war. After the Great War, attendance uh, and enrollment began again to bloom. So, Smith realized that the chapel as it was was inadequate to meet the needs of that new day. So size was an issue. There was a second issue. It was in terrible shape. It was a virtual tinderbox. Visitors would come in 
smoking cigarettes. And whenever they did, they endangered the entire building going up in flames and with it the very precious portraits that had accumulated over the years. So that was a concern. But there was a third concern, uh, that, um, that uh, not only was the chapel not always as reverent as some people thought it might be, but in Smith's opinion, it didn't match what a college should look like. That college should be looking more, this happens to be Dartmouth, you can see Washington and Lee, college in, for him meant red brick and white columns and pediment and classical architecture. And Lee Chapel was anything but. And to put it mildly, Smith thought it was ugly. So he went about doing something about it. Here's a picture of Smith. And William Anderson was the rector of the Board of Trustees at the time. They got going, and they began involving others, starting with the United Daughters of the Confederacy. They persuaded the daughters, who were most willing, to help to maintain the chapel by providing a docent, somebody who would oversee the chapel's well-being to welcome the people, the growing number of visitors, and just see to it that the chapel would be properly cared for. Well, then he worked with the president of the national UDC, uh, Lenora Rogers Schuyler, to become even more ambitious. And that was to create a more fitting monument to Washington, to, uh, to uh, Robert E. Lee, in a way that would meet those other concerns of providing a safer space, but also a place where everybody could meet. So the UDC signed on, and, uh, and he got the university architect named Benjamin Flournoy involved. Flournoy was himself an alum alumnus. He had designed the Doremus Gymnasium at uh, Washington and Lee, and also the Lexington Post Office. And as you can see, Flournoy was very into columns. So he was a suitable architect for the job. So he created the first of many plans that uh, now his job was to, and I'm quoting here, to provide a worthy setting for the Lee statue and an auditorium adequate to the needs of the university. But that, they decided, would require an almost complete demolition of the present structure retaining only what Smith defined as the shrine of the South, which is the statue chamber, the mausoleum, and the office. Everything else, as far as he was concerned, could go. So Flournoy first provided a, proposed a building of the Pantheon type with a circular auditorium 82 feet in diameter. Now, whoops. Here you can see, gone is the tower. He hated the tower. And here's a dome and a, a circular structure. And uh, uh, here are pediments with lots of columns and columns all around the statue chamber, which you can see here. And it, the statue chamber can be seen from anywhere in the auditorium. 
That was plan number one. There followed plans two, three, four, five. You'll see some of them. The first iteration change was to go from a round structure to an octagonal one. And no longer was it going to be a dome, but look at that tower there. Well, then they move onward a bit. And this is what it would look like on the inside for several of these plans. You see, here's Lee Chapel, uh, duly enshrined. Here's an exterior one. Again, you notice the uh, plethora of columns. And the rather dramatic and certainly dominant statue, uh, tower that became a consistent theme of Flournoy's design. Finally, after all these plans, came uh, one of the first uh, real public designs that people could really grasp what Smith had in mind. This was from 1920. And uh, you will then, in the process, Smith has to drop one key word. He had been calling it a renovation. That is not a renovation. <laughs> Rather, he called it from that point on an enlargement. He challenged with this uh, uh, sketch, this, this design, he challenged the UDC national leaders to recognize General Lee's university as peculiarly belonging to the whole South and thus worthy of support, especially for, quoting him again, this great memorial and movement, the enlargement of the chapel, and to continue the work which General Lee erected it, to safeguard it from fire, and to make it more worthy of his name and fame. Smith promised to change, quote, as little as possible, unquote, with the office and mausoleum untouched. The UDC approved the effort overwhelmingly. So he thought he had it made. Well, not quite. Because word began spreading in his own backyard in Lexington itself about what was afoot. And let me tell you, there were some people who were not terribly happy, and many of them were the ladies of the Mary Custis Lee branch of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. They were a force that one reckoned with unwisely. They had already taken over the, the Stonewall Jackson House and ran that as the hospital for the entire area, and they did that very well. So these people knew how to organize and to make things happen. And he had not consulted them. So Mrs. Elizabeth White, who lived on a corner of, of Nelson and Lee, invited uh, 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 um, the um, woman who was the Virginia UDC head of the whole custodial effort of the chapel uh, on the first day of 1922. And they found that they both had some concerns about what Smith was proposing. So they, uh, Mrs. White took it to the 
uh, Mary Custis Lee chapter of the UDC, and many of them were not very con uh, uh, happy with what was going on. They saw that this renovation did not mean renovation, but a virtually total destruction of the old chapel. They didn't get very far. Uh, ironically enough, in its way, they needed a male voice. And they found one in the person of Matthew W. Paxton, who was the editor of the Rockbridge County News, who was an alumnus who generally supported anything that the college did, but not on this. And so he began writing that the, he, he in, uh, in, um, June of 1922, he wrote, the Rockbridge County News has felt deep resentment at the proposed demolition of the Lee Memorial Chapel, for that is what is meant. And with that, the floodgates opened. On July 21, 1922, the Mary Lee Custis chapter met again at the home of Mrs. Cleveland Davis. And then they concocted what amounted as far as the national UDC was concerned with, uh, with, was a mutiny. They began a letter-writing campaign. They sent resolutions to the Virginia UDC meeting in October, and they started writing all over the country. Smith counterattacked, minimizing Lee's role in the chapel, not a good thing to do, and, but stressing his purposes, because he was making the point that he was proposing to do exactly what Lee wanted to do, create a place where the whole university community could meet. He stressed that he had the unanimous approval of the faculty and, or so he thought, the trustees. Well, letters started pouring in opposing what Smith wrote and said and tried to do, and Paxton made sure that every one, single one of them got printed. It went to the Virginia UDC meeting in October of, 18, of 1922, which passed a resolution of opposition to what the national UDC had done. A month later, they went to Birmingham to the national UDC convention. Mrs. Schuyler, uh, of course, chairing the whole thing. And under President General Schuyler, the convention itself reaffirmed its support, much to the devastation of the Virginians. Well, then there was a shift. Smith, here, here is actually the, the last of the original set of schemes, and you can see uh, the floor plan here. Again, notice all the columns, and here's the, uh, the statue chamber, and then this is facing what is now Jefferson Avenue uh, with the campus up here. Well, then he began to change his tune. He conceded that many of General Lee's most devoted admirers, especially in Virginia, had learned through long years to revere the Lee Chapel as a sacred memento. So, on March 26, 1923, the trustees announced that the building will remain unaltered 
This definite and final decision ends a controversy affecting the whole Southland, except for one thing. It didn't. The February 23 plans. Notice you have the old chapel up here, no tower. Instead, you have this. And all of this is new with a great big statue of Lee right back here. So to say that the chapel is unaltered is hardly true. It, there was this major extension. So, and with that, of course, Smith said and told the New York Times in October, we should all rejoice together that a problem so perplexing and on which there was honest difference of opinion should be so successfully solved. Yeah, right. There, a huge response once again came to the fore. There was one article called Lee Chapel Add to It Nothing More. Marietta Minigarode Andrews, who was the daughter of the former rector, uh, the wartime rector of St. Paul's downtown, added, uh, suggested at, uh, that adding a separate auditorium altogether is the way to go. It's totally separate from the chapel. Leave the chapel, build your auditorium, but don't try to combine the two. A uh, Dr. and Mrs. Morris Moore of Lynchburg began a letter-writing campaign. He wrote to all his fellow alumni that he could possibly think of. She wrote to congressmen, senators, um, newspapers, journalists. H.L. Mencken wrote, said that I'd probably do more harm to your cause than good, which is probably true. There was a playwright who had written a production then on Broadway of a, an Englishman named John Drinkwater who wrote back, a building like the Lee Chapel has really become the property of the American race. Notice, not just the South. And whatever you or I or anyone might think of the fitness of the building or otherwise, it really ought to be beyond our power to touch it. As Christmas 1923 approached, one newspaper after another editorialized against it. So, at its meeting on Lee's birthday, January 19, 1924, Smith and Andrews, Anderson bowed to the inevitable. Unfortunately, I'm getting a little bit ahead and losing my pictures. Let me go back a little bit to show you some of what they had had in mind. Here you can see the new chapel, old chapel. This would have been a uh, figure of Lee, sort of like on Monument Avenue here in Richmond. Um, here you can see one of the plans. There, it's hard to make out, but these are statues of sentries guarding the entrance. Here's another one, a modification. Flournoy kept really busy. And now, so this was what they were dealing with that people began reacting against. At its meeting on Lee's birthday, Smith and Anderson bowed to the inevitable. Davis 
uh, John W. Davis, who had been the presidential uh, nominee, or was going to be shortly, drew up uh, articles of surrender in the name of the trustees. In the opinion of the board, it is inexpedient to proceed with the plans heretofore proposed and discussed in relation to the Lee Chapel. Smith and Anderson walked out of that meeting in defeat, arm in arm. But they weren't entirely done. Mrs. Mrs. Andrews, Marietta Minigarode Andrews, and others had proposed the idea of having a separate auditorium. So good old Flournoy, even the ink was hardly dry, or maybe it even hadn't been put to paper from the trustees' articles of surrender before he was creating a, a memorial hall near to, but not connected with the chapel, like this. And notice the abundance of columns. That was on the outside. What about the inside? <laughs> Let me point out, here is a life-size human being. Look at that. It would have fit everybody in the university community and then some into the building. That really didn't go anywhere. Essentially, that was the end of that. And so Lee Chapel remained as it was. The university started taking much better care of it. They created a museum, did a number of things that uh, would spiff it up and keep it up. And I think we have to say that in, uh, in our own day, in 2018, uh, about 100 years after all this controversy, Lee Chapel itself has never looked better, nor has it been kept in better shape. Well, now, why did Smith fail? And what might we learn? It was, in part, I think, a failure on his part to be transparent. And there was some manipulation going on. He didn't think to include everyone, including, for example, those people in his own backyard, people that might not have power. He, was, he got the uh, support of the high and mighty of the UDC, but not of the locals. And that was his undoing. It was perhaps not sexism, but rather a delusion of power. Why did Smith ignore them? It's unclear. Was it arrogance on his part? Did he take them for granted? Did he mistake, make the mistake of appealing to the high and mighty without, uh, while ignoring those in his own neighborhood, who then demonstrated the power that a small, determined group can have? As a result, you could say that David flew, slew Goliath, or maybe more properly, Davida slew Goliath. They, what one of the UDC allies of Smith called a little group of willful women assisted by an ultra-conservative editor. Their work coincided with the advent of the 19th Amendment. But by no means were these progressive women in what we would consider progressive. They were conservative in two ways. 
They were holding to and honoring the past, but that, of course, is what Smith professed to do. They were conservationists in the sense of conserving what they had rather than demolishing it for something new. Now, what were its effects of this controversy? In the process, Lee Chapel itself, was, the very nature of the chapel was redefined. It strengthened the association with Lee, not just with what Lee decide, defined as the shrine, but rather the entire building became the monument to and of Lee. It intensified the connection with the Confederacy, especially in the museum that developed, initially, at least at that time. But it also intensified, as Drinkwater implied, a connection with the nation as a whole, with the chapel and the nation, but also at a time when Lee was being reconnected with the nation. In 1913, Gamaliel Bradford, uh, who was a dyed-in-the-wool Yankee, published a book called Lee the American. And in 1961, of course, the chapel was declared a national historic landmark. As I said, a further was, result was that the university paid more attention to it, better care, and the creation of a museum, which has been revived uh, over the years several times. And so I think as we conclude, in my opinion, we owe a debt of, grat of gratitude to that little group of willful women in Lexington. For one thing, they saved a piece of history. For another thing, they saved us from what might have been, what someone called the Cathedral Church of St. Bob the Divine. <laughs> in that sense, if you're an admirer of Lee or not, there may be reason for gratitude. And as we face controversies in our own day about monuments and memorials and names and our past, the controversy may raise some questions that we might do well to ponder. What were the reasons and motives for creating that artifact, that monument, that building in the first place? What were and are the motives for changing it at the present time. Will the proposal or the change really be an improvement? And what problems, if any, will it create? As well, how might people look on that change from the perspective of 50 or 100 years hence? How will we fit into that larger perspective of history? And what will be people be saying about us? I think these are important questions that we do well to consider in our own day and in our own controversies as we deal with the creatures of our past. Thank you very much. We have time for a few questions, and we have two people with microphones, one in each aisle. 
And if you have a question or whatever, comment, uh, please speak into it. Yes, can you catch us up on what's happening with the Lee Chapel controversy right now? Because I'm only vaguely familiar with it, perhaps others. I really can't. Um, and, uh, and I don't want to comment on it either in any way. I'm not, uh, I am certainly at Washington Lee an awful lot, but I'm not of the Washington Lee community, so it would be inappropriate for me to comment on that. However, there is a website with the full report on the Washington Lee website, and you can read the entire report, including the, the 31 suggestions. Now, some of these suggestions range from how the the university will be using the, uh, the chapel itself, how Lee might be uh, referred to. Uh, I mean, uh, one suggestion is something I've been doing for years, and that is to call, refer to him as President Lee rather than General Lee, especially when it comes to his time involving the, the college itself. So uh, there's 31 suggestions, uh, recommendations, and the university is pondering these, and I believe there's opportunity for people to comment, and many have been doing so. Yes, sir. I'm here with my wife, who is a Lexington native, born in Stonewall Jackson's home. Okay, and we were married 50 years ago in your old church, which has changed its name. Indeed. But you're aware of that. Um, and I realize you can't talk about this controversy, but it's interesting that this controversy was in the 20s and it survived where it is. And, and you can't comment on it. And I, I realize you're not able to comment on the red hens. What's happening to Lexington? I'm just, I'm concerned. <laughs> Let's just say that Lexington has always had controversies involving history. Uh, that are often very contemporary. It might be about history, but it's also about what's very much what's happening today. Well, let me follow up. Are they going to change their name, uh, their mascot name, or the generals? Is that going to change? Um, let me, uh, I don't know, I don't know the recommendation on that. There, the, there was one recommendation that is of note, and that is that uh, the name of the university not be changed at this time. Graham? Oh, somebody in the back? Okay, good. Yes, I was curious after like three or four years, how much uh, compensation did Mr. Flournoy get for all of his futile Oh efforts? my goodness, I have no clue, but what a good question. I wish I'd been able to find out. Maybe that'll have to go into the second edition. That's a wonderful question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that he did anything else in those years. It was just one sketch after another. Um, and, and, you know, um, I, I spent, uh, with my earlier book, I spent most of my time in this building. Uh, for the current one, uh, I was down in Special Collections, and we just hit the gold mine because they've retained all these um, sketches. And we printed them all in the book. So... I refer you to those. But I don't know how much they paid him. Yes. Um, could you tell us a, a little bit more about Thomas Holmes Williamson? 
Uh, particularly his relationship to architecture? Did he do things other than Yes, that? Thomas Holmes Williamson actually uh, is a more important figure than perhaps we in Lexington realize. He and Francis H. Smith were two of the people who gathered the Episcopal Church, what became Grace Church, then later R.E. Lee Memorial Church, now back to Grace Church. So he was very active and very, uh, very involved in the church community and at VMI, um, certainly he taught engineering for a very long time. He was quite interested in architecture, and as I say, he wrote a textbook on the topic. He uh, agreed with Owen a lot that, uh, that um, Saxon architecture is worthwhile. I don't think he went as far as Owen in saying that this should be the American style, um, but he was certainly very interested in all of that. Yes, sir. I'll, I'll just follow up on that. I'm, I'm the reason she may be interested in that is he was my great great grandfather. Ah. Oh. <laughs> uh -huh. Thomas Holmes Williams. Yes, thank you. Yes. Is it correct that the original flags have been removed? And if so, what's happened to them? Okay. Thank you. The original flags, back up. The, there were no Confederate flags in the, um, displayed in the chapel. The earliest, other than perhaps the uh, dedication of the extension in 1883, and they, they were there for the 1907 centennial observance of Lee's birth. Some people got the broad idea, well, maybe we should put these in there all the time. And so the president wrote to the Confederate Literary Society, now known as the Museum of the Confederacy, which of course now is the American, American Civil War Museum, um, asking for some flags. And they received them, but they were not displayed routinely. That didn't happen until uh, about 1929, 1930, when somebody who was in the audience in 1907 remembered those flags and arranged for it for a number of uh, flags to be uh, lent to the university by the Museum of the Confederacy. Those were displayed in outside and then later in the statue chamber itself. And I certainly remember when I arrived in 1987, we would go and there would be the original Confederate flags on the four corners of the chapel. In 1994, the uh, Museum of the Confederacy became concerned that they were decaying, which in fact they were. And so they asked for those to be returned, which was their perfect right because they owned them. And one of the people who determined the ownership and all of that in relation to the museum and also the UDC is Hobson Godden, who is sitting right here in front of me, my good friend. So that was in 1994. They were replaced with replicas thanks to the UDC. So these were not the original flags. The original flags actually left at request of the museum in 1994, replaced by replicas. In 2014, uh, a number of students from the law school joined with others, raised the question as to whether they should stay at all. And so in 2014, President Ruscio uh, asked that they be returned to the UDC. 
And in so doing, in my opinion, what they did to was to restore the statue chamber to its appearance more or less as it was when it was dedicated in 1883. I hope that answers your question. Okay, good. You all done? All right, thank you.